This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Brown. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. Part 1st, Section 15. In every point of view in which those things called miracles can be placed and considered, the reality of them is improbable and their existence unnecessary. They would not, as before observed, answer any useful purpose, even if they were true. For it is more difficult to obtain belief to a miracle than to a principle evidently moral without any miracle. Moral principle speaks universally for itself. Miracle could be but a thing of the moment, and seen but by a few. After this, it requires a transfer of faith from God to man to believe a miracle upon man's report. Instead, therefore, of admitting the recitals of miracles as evidence of any system of religion being true, they ought to be considered as symptoms of its being fabulous. It is necessary to the full and upright character of truth that it rejects the crutch, and it is consistent with the character of fable to seek the aid that truth rejects. Thus much for mystery and miracle. As mystery and miracle took charge of the past and the present, prophecy took charge of the future and rounded the tenses of faith. It was not sufficient to know what had been done, but what would be done. The supposed prophet was the supposed historian of times to come, and if he happened in shooting with a longbow of a thousand years to strike within a thousand miles of a mark, the ingenuity of a posterity could make it point blank. And if he happened to be directly wrong, it was only to suppose, as in the case of Jonah and Nineveh, that God had repented himself and changed his mind. What a fool do fabulous systems make of man. It has been shown in a former part of this work that the original meaning of the words prophet and prophesying has been changed, and that a prophet in the sense of the word as now used, is a creature of modern invention. And it is owing to this change in the meaning of the words that the flights and metaphors of the Jewish poets and phrases and expressions now rendered obscure by our not being acquainted with the local circumstances to which they applied at the time they were used, have been erected into prophecies and made to bend to explanations at the will and whimsical conceits of sectaries, expounders, and commentators. Everything unintelligible was prophetical, and everything insignificant was typical. A blunder would have served for a prophecy, and a dash clout for a type. If by a prophet we are to suppose a man to whom the Almighty communicated some event that would take place in future, either there were such men or there were not. If there were, 
it is consistent to believe that the event so communicated would be told in terms that could be understood, and not related in such a loose and obscure manner as to be out of the comprehension of those that heard it, and so equivocal as to fit almost any circumstance that may happen afterward. It is conceiving very irreverently of the Almighty, to suppose that he would deal in this jesting manner with mankind, yet all the things called prophecies in the book called the Bible come under this description. But it is with prophecy as it is with miracle. It could not answer the purpose even if it were real. Those to whom a prophecy should be told could not tell whether the man prophesied or lied, or whether it had been revealed to him, or whether he conceded it. And if the thing that he prophesied, or intended to prophesy, should happen, or something like it, among the multitude of things that are daily happening, nobody could again know whether he foreknew it, or guessed at it, or whether it was accidental. A prophet, therefore, is a character useless and unnecessary, and the safe side of the case is to guard against being imposed upon by not giving credit to such relations. Upon the whole, mystery, miracle, and prophecy are appendages that belong to fabulous and not to true religion. They are the means by which many low here's and low there's have been spread about the world and religion made into a trade. The success of one impostor gave encouragement to another, and the quieting salvo of doing some good by keeping up a pious fraud protected them from remorse. Having now extended the subject to a greater length than I first intended, I shall bring it to a close by abstracting a summary from the whole. First, that the idea or belief of a word of God existing in print or in writing, or in speech, is inconsistent in itself for reasons already assigned. These reasons, among many others, are the want of a universal language, the mutability of language, the errors to which translations are subject, the possibility of totally suppressing such a word, the probability of altering it, or of fabricating the whole, and imposing it upon the world. Secondly, that the creation we behold is the real and ever-existing word of God, in which we cannot be deceived. It proclaims his power, it demonstrates his wisdom, it manifests his goodness and beneficence. Thirdly, that the moral duty of man consists in imitating the moral goodness and beneficence of God, manifested in the creation toward all his creatures that seeing, as we daily do, the goodness of God to all men, it is an example calling upon all men to practice the same toward each other, and, consequently, that everything of persecution and revenge between man and man, and everything cruelty to animals, is a violation of moral duty. I trouble not myself about the manner of future existence, I content myself with believing, even to positive conviction, 
that the power that gave me existence is able to continue it in any form and manner he pleases, either with or without this body. And it appears more probable to me that I shall continue to exist hereafter than that I should have had existence as I now have before that existence began. It is certain that, in one point, all the nations of the earth and all religions agree. All believe in a God. The things in which they disagree are the redundancies annexed to that belief, and therefore, if ever a universal language should prevail, it will not be by believing anything new, but in getting rid of redundancies and believing as man believed at first. Adam, if ever there were such a man, was created a deist, but in the meantime, let every man follow, as he has a right to do, the religion and the worship he prefers. End of the first part. Thus far, I had written on the 28th of December, 1793. In the evening, I went to the Hotel Philadelphia, formerly White's Hotel, Passage des Petits Pierres, where I lodged when I came to Paris in consequence of being elected a member of the convention, but left the lodging about nine months and taken lodgings in the Rue Fabus Saint-Denis for the sake of being more retired than I could be in the middle of the town. Meeting with a company of Americans at the Hotel Philadelphia, I agreed to spend the evening with them, and, as my lodging was distant about a mile and a half, I bespoke a bed at the hotel. The company broke up about 12 o'clock, and I went directly to bed. About 4 in the morning, I was awakened by a rapping at my chamber door. When I opened it, I saw a guard and the master of the hotel with them. The guard told me that they came to put me under arrestation and to demand the key of my papers. I desired them to walk in, and I would dress myself and go with them immediately. It happened that Achille Adibert of Calais was then in the hotel, and I desired to be conducted into his room. When he came there, I told the guard that I had only lodged at the hotel for the night, that I was printing a work, and that part of that work was at the Maison Bretagne, Rue Jacob, and desired they would take me there first, which they did. The printing office at which the work was printing was near the Maison Bretagne, where Colonel Blackton and Joel Barlow of the United States of America lodged, and I had desired Joel Barlow to compare the proof sheets with the copy as they came from the press. The remainder of the manuscript from page 32 to 76 was at my lodging. But besides the necessity of my collecting all the parts of the work together that the publication might not be interrupted by my imprisonment or by any event that might happen to me, it was highly proper that I should have a fellow citizen of America with me during the examination of my papers as I had letters of correspondence in my possession of the President of Congress, General Washington. 
the Minister of Foreign Affairs to Congress, Mr. Jefferson, and the late Benjamin Franklin, and it might be necessary for me to make a process verbal to send to Congress. It happened that Joel Barlow had received only one proof sheet of the work, which he had compared with the copy and sent it back to the printing office. We then went, in company with Joel Barlow, to my lodging, and the guard, or commissaires, took with them the interpreter of the Committee of Surety General. It was satisfactory to me that they went through the examination of my papers with the strictness they did, and it is but justice that I say they did it not only with civility, but with tokens of respect to my character. I showed them the remainder of the manuscript of the foregoing work. The interpreter examined it and returned it to me, saying, It is an interesting work. It will do much good. I also showed him another manuscript, which I had intended for the Committee of Public Safety. It is entitled, Observations on the Commerce between the United States of America and France. After the examination of my papers was finished, the guard conducted me to the prison of the Luxembourg, where they left me as they would a man whose undeserved fate they regretted. I offered to write, under the process verbal they had made, that they had executed their orders with civility, but they declined it. End of section 15 End of part 1